0: Welcome to Give and Take, it's the podcast where yours truly, Scott Jones, talks with artists, authors, theologians, political pundits, media people, and assorted others about the lens through which they experience life. My guest is Stanley Harawas. Stanley is Gilbert T. Rowe Professor Emeritus of Divinity and Law at Duke University, one of America's best known and most highly regarded living theologians. He's the author of many notable works, including Resident Aliens. Living Gently in a Violent World, and Hannah's Child. His most recent book is The Character of Virtue, Letters to a Godson. They're actual letters he's written over the past 15 years to his actual godson. These letters are full of timeless wisdom from a renowned theologian on a life well lived. I give you Stanley Harawas. Stanley, welcome to the podcast.
1: I'm glad to be here.
0: So your most recent book, The Character of Virtue, Letters to a Godson, is fascinating because I've been reading and following your work for years, and it occurred to me that if somebody read this book, These Letters to Your Godson, they'd get a pretty good sense for your work. Is, is that a fair, do you think that's a fair assessment?
1: I hope it is. I I think the book is somewhat surprising to the extent that my explication of the virtues locate the virtues in our everyday bodily life, which means the virtues don't fall from heaven, but come from our most essential nature, which means that those that have interpreted me as uh, denying the significance of the everyday, the natural aspects of what it means to grow into the christian life um i hope that this book uh, challenges that interpretation
0: yeah it is a, it's a really earthy book and, and and you know it's interesting that you begin in the first letter i think on the first anniversary of your godson's baptism explicating explicating kindness yeah and I found that really fascinating i mean you said that you, you you say it's it's there's a reason that you chose that and not love
1: yeah i I thought about these matters quite a bit, and I thought kindness was appropriate because I was trying each time to think about the virtue that might in some ways be age related and kindness seems to me to be so important for young children because we're cruel. <laughs> I mean, when we are young, there's a we we don't know what that pulling the cat's tail is cruelty. And so how you embody kindness through learning how to pet the kitty is um I think very important. So I was trying to show how it was that we developed the virtues insofar as they ride on the back of fundamental practices that we learn through our everyday interactions.
0: You say something remarkable, too, about this is, I mean, this is great stuff to tell a one-year-old, right, <laughs> that, that, that there's something about speaking where you gain power, but then you lose it. Right. Because before a child can speak, it just sort of you know it, 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 what does Kierkegaard say? We're like the god that shits right. because we're we're godlike, and that we just say what we we just cry out, and then we get what we want, and yet we can't control our bowels. But it, it, you talk about when the child learns to speak, they gain power of self-expression, but lose power because then they make that
1: it becomes expectation, right? Right, they can be reasoned with. I um um that's so I think truthfulness is for the second year and and I assumed and I'd seen Laurie and he was beginning to make fundamental da da so so on sounds. And I do think it's the case that when you start learning to talk, you can be quote, reasoned with. Not now. (laughs) And um Before you learn language, it's uh, 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 and you better give it to me now or I'm going to squawk like everything. So there is a kind of loss of power that goes with learning to speak, and there's also an enhancement of power insofar as we then can say more clearly what we should want, not just what we do want.
0: Yeah, you also you taught you have this great passage in the in the letter on truth. You see, some people are so good at living lies, and the lies that constitute our lives often take the dreaded form of the half truth. They end up living out a, a life. They, they end up living out a life that is not their own. Self deception, which is a deeper reality than lying to ourselves, is a fate worse than death. Right? Okay. Do you? You 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 are very candid in the book about your own uh, uh, not being a paragon of the virtues you're always commending. Do you, do you have, can you think of times in your life where you feel like you were self-deceived, you know, either personally or professionally where that was that, is that
1: a temptation that you've faced? Well, self-deception is an extremely uh, hard concept to get a hold of because it's not lying to yourself. Because if you lie to yourself, you know that you're lying to yourself so you're not self-deceived. You're just lying to yourself. So, years ago, David Burrell and I wrote an article on Albert Speer, Hitler's munitions minister, who was an architect. And he always thought the whole time that he was having Nazi Germany run by developing these terrible weapons, he always thought, I'm just an architect. Well, that was a deep identity self-deception. He was Hitler's munitions minister. And how much he was duplicitous um, in writing inside the Third Reich, is, um, it's very hard to know how to tell one way or the other about that. But we, using him as an exemplar, we argued that self-deception is... Um, failure to spell out the projects and engagements one is involved exactly because if you spell them out, it would challenge your self-understanding of who you are. So um, I'm sure I've been possessed by self-deception, and I use the language possessed advisedly, but it's very hard to name it. For many years, um, I was married to a lady who was very, very ill mentally. We now call it bipolar. And um, I told myself I was just trying to uh, make the marriage work. How much did it depend on me um, thinking uh, that I was afraid of failure? Uh, as part of the narrative that was carrying through in that way. That would be an example of how I probably was caught in some forms of deception.
0: You've told, stu- you told this story a few times in writing, and I've heard you tell it in person, where, that you were lecturing somewhere, and, and and a pastor, and you were talking about the, the necessity of the church, I think, and you were like in the restroom after the talk at this Methodist conference, and this pastor said to you, well, where do you go to church regularly? And and you said something like, well, you know, most of the weekends I'm out lecturing and then don't have a regular church. And he basically said, akin to like, well, then you're kind of full of shit if you're talking about this, right? Yeah. <laughs> and yet you're not part of a little And then you became a part of
1: his church, right? That's right. His name was John Smith. He was a Methodist pastor in South Bend at Broadway United Methodist Church. And uh, it was a hard, scrabble church, just barely surviving. They were about Oh, maybe 30 of us. And uh, he was a truth teller. And uh, I very much uh, 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 am indebted to him uh, making me part of that uh, community.
0: You say also in the truthfulness section, I believe, where you, you say to your godchild that it's often easier to forgive than to be forgiven. But that's the nature of the Christian life is one where you live under forgiveness. Is, is the reason that it's harder as I was reading, I was thinking, is it because when you, for when you receive forgiveness, you're opening up like self-condemnation, you can do all by yourself, but living forgiven is, is it harder because it, you're giving up the reins of your story to someone else?
1: Yeah, absolutely. I mean, to be forgiven is to be given a life that is now fundamentally out of control because, um to be forgiven means someone has an account of you that is not your own account, but is probably truer than your own account. So uh to be forgiven is to, as you just put it, uh discover that how to narrate your life is dependent on those who are ready to forgive what oftentimes is the unforgivable. So, um, yeah, I mean that's been a, a theme um for a long time. I contemporary Christians are kind of tingling masses of availability, uh wanting to lay some forgiveness on people because it makes them feel superior. Uh they rarely think that the first movement is to accept forgiveness for our refusal to Uh, Live in a manner that Christ made possible.
0: Hmm. You, you also say, you know, it's interesting because you have one of the things you write about in in the book is friendship, and you say that. To your godson that you hope that um that that he'll learn to rejoice in the friends you discover that- uh, just important to say i hope you'll learn to rejoice in the friends you discover you didn't know you had through our friendship for christians friendship is not a zero-sum game we believe our friendships make friendships with others possible right that I mean, you're somebody that has seen an inordinate capacity to, to correspond with people and connect and i think Many people probably count you as a friend. Uh, is as you get older, is it is easy to make friends? Does it get harder? I mean, is it? Is it? Is it? Is it do you do you find it, It's pretty much the same, or is it a more challenging thing to have deep friendship?
1: I think it's harder. Um, uh, you don't have as much energy, <laughs> and the um, uh, uh, and um, I say that I've thought a lot about dying. And, um, I think I don't know that I'm ready to die, but I at least have a better hold on it. I haven't thought much about growing old and growing old is its own reality. And, uh, it, there are deep challenges associated with it. And, uh, friendship involves people having to put up with the fact that you don't get around as well as you once did. So, um, uh, there is a kind of challenge. To friendship when you're old. One, if you become friends with other people that are old, they die on you. <laughs> and yeah. You die on them. And uh, that's not much fun. Uh, also, it has to do, Aristotle says in the ethics that you can't be friends with many. And uh, I would like to think that we Christians oftentimes have friends we didn't know we had by simply discovering that we both worship the same God. But um, you do kind of run out of time for having numerous friends. So, uh, uh, I mean, if friends share life, then there is an economy that uh, makes time uh, quite fragile.
0: Yeah, I think where C.S. Lewis is talking about one of his close friends that died, and he and he thought, this kind of perverse consolation, well, at least I'll get more of my other, co- like, you know, there's two or three close friends, and one of them died, at least I'll get more of my friend uh-huh. Jack now. And he realized, no, I get less of him, because uh-huh. the part of him that was called out by our mutual friend is gone now. Right. That no. that, that friend is gone.
1: No. I wonder if Jack, was it Jack? I'm a, I wonder, which Jack?
0: Yeah, I forget which friend it was. Huh. But I, I just remember him talking huh. about that. Because I, I thought about that when I read your past, that pastor said friendship is not a zero-sum game.
1: Uh-huh. Right. No, I, I, I mean, when people say, like, well, I can only have one child because I've only got so much love to give. Uh, I, I mean, it's not, it's not the same as friendship, but the idea that love is a zero-sum game or that friendship is a zero-sum game, fails to appreciate how those relations create time and space that expands the possibilities of more friends and more people we can love and can love us. You said you
0: think a lot about death. Do you think about the afterlife? No, no. You, I, do you, do you, do you, do, do uh, you believe in it though? Would do you think, you think, is this something you confess as a Christian? Hey, part of the creed.
1: Yes. God has promised us an ongoing life with God. I, I simply don't speculate about what that might mean. I just don't know what, how you would do that.
0: You, you're someone who, again, who has, has a lot of friends, has made a lot of relationships over your professional life and, Are there people that have become friends that originally you regarded as more adversarial (laughs) and they wound up becoming friends?
1: I'd like to think Jeff Stout and I are good friends. Uh, And of course, he's been very, very critical of me. Uh, But I respect um, uh, his passion uh, and his intellect and his scholarship. Um, I think that's the best example I could give.
0: Yeah, I took. A couple graduates, him mean, or He's the best teacher I've ever studied. I don't doubt he, that. I mean, he's remarkable. He's
1: remarkable. Yeah. He's he's got such a extraordinary clear mind. I mean, it's it's just uh, it's it's. I love I love just to listen to Jeff uh, lay out a position. It's it's uh, it's really a gift.
0: Yeah, he's one of those teachers that he can state back to you exactly what you said, mm-hmm. and you think, "Oh, you agree with me?" No, I, I disagree. But he says exactly what you meant it to uh-huh. say. He, he, did, he never, he did, I never saw him mischaracterize uh-huh. positions. Like right. he always laid them out with clarity and truthfulness. No, or absolutely, sort of a vir- virtue, a real.
1: If you if if you haven't watched his Giffords, do so. They're online. And they're, they're just brilliant.
0: I, I remember he gave a lecture on David Hume once, and he perfected the Scottish accent. Right oh, really? It, it, was, it was so brilliant. I mean, the guy would just do the, I mean, he was, huh. yeah. It's funny, too, because I heard him do a lecture on Augustine that, that for undergrads. I thought it was one of the best things. Huh. I was so moved. I said, Jeff, as a, I know you're Nathan, but as a Christian, I mean, that's just the best picture of Augustine I've heard. someone like that. And, he said, and he turned to me and said, all is grace. <laughs> he
1: buried himself in the part right yes the, um, um, of he's learned a, his Augustine is an Augustine he's learned from a close friend named Jim Wetzel uh, and uh, Jim is the best reader of Augustine we can possibly have we, you, you've
0: been I mean you were named America's greatest theologian by time Magazine. no I was named
1: the best theologian in America
0: Best right. theologian in America, right. right? Before 9-11. Pacifism was more in before 9-11. Right.
1: It it, <laughs> it was – Um. Uh, it, the Time magazine came out uh, September the 12th, 2001. <laughs> <laughs> I, I'm curious as someone who has arguably been
0: you know, one of the most prominent, if not the most prominent people in the American theological scene – What's changed the most on the theological landscape in your professional life? Like, what's what's the most stark difference you see now than when you began your career?
1: I think in the past 10 years, um, theological education in America has been taken over with identity politics. And while there's some good reason for that, um, I find it a, a development that... Uh, is not entirely healthy. When when my generation went through graduate school and trained to be theologians, I think we only cared about one thing. Is this stuff true? And that's been a passion for me to sustain the work I've done over the years. I'm not sure that question is central to people anymore. And I think that's a deep, deep problem. Is there an
0: impact you've had that you feel best about? Like when you look as you're in retirement and you're looking out at the students you've taught, the things, is there an influence that you've had that you are really most hopeful about or think thing that, yeah, I'm really glad I did this. And, and I can see that it's still leaving an impact.
1: I would like to think what one of the things I've done in terms of the students that have been through my classes and that I've directed dissertations is they have a love of the language of the faith and they're determined to make it work so i'm um i i I really uh thank god for that i've had wonderful students and uh i um i think they do better work than i do and um they do it within many of the problematics however that they learn from me and that's,
0: uh, that's terrific. It's, I've heard you say that, you know, the mainline Protestants are kind of like, what's the minimum I have to sign on to be part of right. the team? Right. Whereas you're like traditional Catholics are sort of like, look at all these neat things I get to believe. Right. Is part of what you've tried to instill is, is, is to create students that are more in the look at all these neat things. Absolutely. At the end of the ledger. Absolutely.
1: No, I, um, um, I always think for Protestants, um, to, re- For them to learn to recognize why it's important that Mary is the mother of God, it's a good place to make that point uh, as strongly as you can. Because if Mary isn't the mother of God, the firstborn of the new creation, then it's all bullshit.
0: (laughs) Don't sugarcoat it for me. (laughs) (laughs) You said something remarkable in the letter to your godchild on Patience.
1: You, You said that
0: you're an angry person. Yeah and that you're not completely sure why, That's maybe it's your passion, but this is something you've had to grapple with. And, and it's funny to say this, because I've heard you say that the reason that you're a pacifist is because you know at heart you could be a violent son of a bitch. I, I mean, is it related to that? I mean, is, I mean that, could you say a little bit about the anger that's in you and and, and, and you know, do you have any more... Because ins- that letter was written years ago. I mean, have you gotten closer to the heart of a, what what's at the anger?
1: Um, I just get unbelievably, um, I guess anger is as good a word as any, when I go to a church and I hear sentimental crap preached as the gospel, and you think, where in the hell does this come from, that these people ordained into the ministry of the Church of Jesus Christ um, want So desperately to be liked, they end up telling the Christian people pablum, and it just angers me because I want to say, "Ah, just get out! (laughs) Just get out! Why, why are you doing this to us?" And I, I, um, I, I assume, I think part of it is being raised a bricklayer. When you raise a bricklayer and you you've been learned to labor and finally you learn to lay brick, it, uh, it's hard work and you just better do it as well as you can hmm. because if you don't, it's uh, you're going to get in trouble. And so I just kind of learned from construction that you better just do it right or get out. And so I just, um, there's a kind of class aspect to it. When you come from the working class, you just get extremely uh, impatient with um, people who have had so many privileges and cannot, and those privileges turn them into uh, people who have nothing to say that anyone else wants to hear. So I guess that's where part of my anger comes from. I mean, I, I mean, most people wouldn't think of me as an angry person, but I am.
0: Yeah. I was kind of surprised when I read that because I know you a little bit and we've interacted a few times and I, yeah, that was an interesting part of the book. That, that revelation was interesting to me.
1: Well, I, I think it's, I think it's true. Yeah,
0: you know, I you, you've, in, in your memoir, Hannah's Child, you say that, you know, basically you used to joke that you're you wanted to be an entertainer and that your lectures are all like a Johnny Carson routine mm-hmm. with a five minute commercial for theology. And then you said, well, really the whole thing was a commercial for theology. But I mean, theology is something you love. And that's, I mean, I say that because you, you meet some theologians and you sense they don't love it. Uh, you know, it just doesn't, it doesn't exude from them. You know, the love of it. I mean, you, you said that you've written that, that most people probably don't have to become theologians to become Christians, but you did.
1: Yeah, I think that's true.
0: I- Why? Why? Why did you need to become a theologian to be a Christian?
1: Well, I don't think of myself as a very good Christian. Uh, And all my...
0: That's like where Schleiermacher says, right? We know the essence of faith can't be knowledge, because (laughs) then theologians would be us Christians, and everyone knows that's
1: not (laughs) true. (laughs) Uh, And um, I I think that um, it's the endless fascination with the... Claims the language is making in terms of how they force you to see the world um, in a way that's otherwise unavailable—that is just endlessly fascinating for me. <laughs> and I—I um, um, I mean, to learn to see the world as created, as fundamentally contingent all the way down, is uh, not easy. And, but I. Um so I find theology endlessly in, incomplete in a way that makes life wonder. So I'm very happy to be a, uh, a theologian. Um if you don't expect the theologian to always have an answer. It's a good question.
0: Yeah, you know, it's interesting to me that you've um you in in the book in the section on I think it's the section on humility uh, and humor. You talk about Reinhold Niebuhr uh, right. and, and and how he was right to emphasize humility uh, for political engagement. I think a lot of people would look at you as kind of the anti Niebuhr. I am.
1: <laughs>
0: but, 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 but your past wasn't, isn't. Could you just say that you're a different kind of Christian realist in that because because I, I, one realism would be Niebuhrs, but then you're always insistent that you have a kind of realist right. pacifism that says we we we're not pacifists to make things come out right. right. We're pacifists because we believe the resurrection of Jesus Christ made it come out right. right.
1: No, that's that's very astutely put, and uh, all that's true is meant. I I was asked about for. Robin Lovin is editing I I don't know I can't remember if it's Oxford or Cambridge Companion on Reinhold Niebuhr and they asked me to do Niebuhr and eschatology and I said oh hell no I've done I've done too many essays on Niebuhr already and Robin came back and said well would you do a chapter on Niebuhr just saying what you think is his greatest contribution and so i've I've done that, and uh your summary involves some of what I had to say, but also I had to say was um niebuhr um was a person of extraordinary insight. there's a wisdom to him that sucks us in that uh I find at once extremely compelling and also uh, dangerous."
0: Yeah, I mean, is, is Niebuhr what happens when you do ethics without taking the resurrection really seriously. Yeah, because you're right; there is earthy wisdom there. Yeah. I mean, yeah. but I but it's not it's not baptized in the light of the resurrection. That's so. right.
1: No, that that's that's exactly right. That's the way I would understand it.
0: So if you get rid of Easter Sunday, he might be the best Christian ethicist there is. That's true.
1: That's true. <laughs> no, uh, I'm. Uh, I mean, he was. Uh, He was a man of uh, startling intellect in many ways.
0: I want to take a brief moment to ask you a quick question. Do you like this podcast? Do you enjoy it? Do you look forward to listening to it while you do a morning after your evening routine or while you're exercising or while you're frustrated in traffic? Do you tune into it? Really, just you being a patron of an art form you enjoy and are passionate about. So, I invite you to be a patron through Patreon of this, which I think is an art form you're enjoying and will continue to enjoy. Again, any contribution is welcome, but for five bucks a month, you will get a shout out on the thank you roll call, which begins right now. Thank you, David and Winona Babico, Michael Butera, Peter Stegenwald. Samantha Blythe, Sari Graham, Jordan and Danny Morseberger, Josh Redder, Ellis Brazil, David Zall, Jonathan Butrin, Ben DeHart, Stephen Rowe, Ben Crosby, John Schneider, Stephen Lipless, Charlotte Donlin, Larry Rule, and Barry Stewart. If you want to join these patrons through Patreon, just go to patreon.com forward slash Scott Kent Jones. Thanks again for listening, and now back to the show. There was something that really struck me in the in the letter you wrote to your godson on courage. And you said that his father is developed this kind of human relations, everyday human relations. You said that um, he learned from improv that we're often tempted to block conversation from going in directions that may make us vulnerable because of our fear of the unknown. And he says, you know, the improv actor always said, the only word is yes. They're always trying to keep it going. They, 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 like if you, if you follow this blocking instincts – You'll just be a shitty improv actor. Right, that's right. <laughs> and you, you you said he
1: taught you this term called over-acceptance. Right. Can you say a little bit about that? Um, it's a way of responding to people that uh, want to end the conversation by responding in a way that reframes where you've been in a way that el- enables you to go on. And uh, it's uh, over accepting can be hard work because intellectually, it's very demanding. But uh, I think that uh, uh, Sam is quite right to see it as um, um, an essential aspect uh, that draws on courage, draws on and courage produces imaginative responses that otherwise um, would not be uh, possible
0: towards the conclusion of the book you, you talk you encourage as as your godson's getting older you encourage him you talk you write this letter about faith and he's in an english boarding school and you you point out the fact that his his peers are going to find because of the sort of secularization in here you mm-hmm. know in england his his Peers are going to find it kind of peculiar that his life is so characterized by the Christian story yeah, and reality. I mean, and and he, I mean, you know, I wonder. I wonder, like, is there? I have a friend and mentor, Paul Zoll, who wrote a book called um, uh, "Grace in Practice," and. He said, you know, I've, I've come to, to, instead of using the word grace, I've talked about one-way love, <laughs> it, this over-accepting kind of love of God. Um, because he was like, I was trying to find something that wasn't so religious. Uh-huh. Um, are there are there certain terms that you think, uh, uh, are there terms that need to be reinvented or translated, or, or are there certain parts of, of the Christian grammar that are really crucial to be able to speak well, if we're going to, in a sort of post-Christian society, if the church is going to continue
1: to bear its witness? Well, first of all, Laurie, Laurie's mother is a Bishop of the church of England. And his, oh, wow. and, <laughs> and his father is a rector of um, uh, St. Martin's in the field in Piccadilly square of London. You don't have parents that are any more, um, outrageously Christian <laughs> or at least have christian uh tasks than that, so he's Laurie's stuck with christianity uh, uh, I mean whether he rejects it or learns to live it um it's 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 in his um life in a way that there's no avoiding it um uh, in terms of the question however I think um uh, there is a language that has to be uh at the center of where we are today it's called jesus is lord <laughs> and uh that set of claims is um uh, irrevocable and we have to we have to live in a manner that uh, witnesses our convictions that jesus is lord
0: your your godson is 17 now? 16. 16. So do you guys talk on the no, phone? I mean, do you n- talk? No. You, you, have you just, have you, like, when was the last time you saw him?
1: Uh, about a year ago. And so I, um, you know, when they lived here, we would go to basketball games and baseball games and that kind of thing. But uh, Lawrence is a um, a very quiet, quiet person. And um I'm not. So you don't you don't want to force artificial relations that um because you've written a memo because you've written this um uh book, um you let things develop naturally. So that's um you know, I was sending the book with a note saying, Oh, someday you might want to read this <laughs> But um uh, uh I I'm certainly not gonna try to
0: force the relation in, in, in the book Hannah's child, which I, I mean that, that book and, and this, and this book, the character virtue might, might be two of the favorite things you've ever written. I've read, I've read most of what you've written, a lot of what you've written. Um, But in Hannah's Child, you say this. I was was rereading this last night. You say, what so often makes us liars is not what we do, but the justifications we offer for what we do. Our justifications become the way we try to defeat the contingencies of our lives by telling ourselves, consoling stories that suggest we have done as well as possible. I cannot pretend I've avoided deceit in this memoir, but I have at least how to check on the lies I might tell. Being Christian means that I must try to make sense of my life in light of the gospel, and so I I do not get to determine the truthfulness of my story. Rather, those who live according to the gospel will be the ones to determine where I have been truthful and where I have deceived myself.
1: When I hear that, I think, boy, that's pretty good. I wonder who wrote it (laughs) (laughs) because I'm not sure I wrote it, (laughs) but uh, I think it's true.
0: (laughs) Yeah. It's so interesting because, uh, you know, we're, we're in the 500th anniversary, you know, the reformation. Reformation. And and I think about Luther's, you know, lifting up justification by faith, but you know, you, you talk there about if you're Christian, you got nothing to lose by, you know, living in light of the truth. I wonder is, is some of this, um, to really be a, a person that cultivates the, the grace life of the mind, I, I wonder, what are the noetic effects of, ju- of the doctrine of justification in the sense of if we're justified by faith and not by ideas or identity politics or ideology, then we sh- would seem to have an easier time, right, seeing where we're deceived or giving up ideas that have turned into ideologies and things like that, right? But, but is that sort of self-justification what locks people in? To sort of call the sacs intellectually and spiritually. Well, first of all,
1: I'm uh, I do not like justification by faith through grace, uh, and and it became an abstraction in Lutheranism, uh, and um, it beca- and as a result, it, it was the basis for the development of Protestant liberalism, in which uh, uh, our agency became central. Um, rather than Jesus Christ. Luther never meant any of that to happen. But I think uh, the making justification by faith through grace, um, where grace didn't necessarily name Jesus, uh, was uh, a development within Lutheranism that turned theology into anthropology. And um, therefore, um, I, I I wrote a piece for the Post Uh, for the 500th anniversary, in which I suggested that um, the Reformation worked. Um, Catholicism has now reformed itself in every way that Luther could have wanted. So what do we Protestants do now? (laughs) The, The whole question of what is um, uh, the, few, I mean, the very name, Protestant, names a protest movement within the Church Catholic that is about and should be about the reclaiming of our unity with one another. Um, and um, I think that that's one of the great challenges before us. Not that there's going to be that many Protestants left to um, uh, have a relationship with, with Catholicism one way or the other given the way things are
0: going. Now, I want to ask you about something. Uh, before I ask you this question, I've heard it on good authority that you said you've given up the F word recently. Oh, I've given it
1: up. I've, I it's been not just recently. It's been a long time. Uh, um, I can't... So I might, you, you
0: might not be able to answer this question without it, but I'm going to give it a shot. What are your thoughts on Donald Trump?
1: Oh, I see. <laughs> well I, I say, I say, I... Um, uh, I can say the f word, but I cannot use it um so I'm not going to say it even but um i think I think Trump represents the end of the American Empire, and um the crudity uh is um an indication of that, and it's going to be one of the great challenges for Christians over the next fifty to a hundred years of how to stop. An America that is losing its power from becoming fascist. So um, I um, I think it's very serious business that Donald Trump is president. As, a,
0: as somebody who's been for decades, been a, a Christendom critic and a critic of the American, the American imperial kind of project. Do you look at Trump and say, I told you so,
1: guys. I, <laughs> this is where it was going. <laughs> I, I said, how? Uh, When Trump was elected, I said, Jesus, this election seems to have been determined to show that what I've been saying is true. And I'm so sorry about that. (laughs)
0: It's
1: bittersweet, right? It's bittersweet. (laughs) Right. Right. So, no, it's um, it's a dark time.
0: You know, one of the things that you said, you say in the book towards the end, you're in this section on humility. Then you talk about your own insecurity mm-hmm. and ha- being a coming from a working class kind of background. I've heard you said, I just outworked everybody else. I didn't have, you know, like I would get in earlier than all the other academics. And you're just the bricklayer. It was some a bricklayer workhorse, but you said, you said something really interesting. You said insecurity isn't the same as humility, put differently, a humility that expresses a more fundamental insecurity isn't humility. Right.
1: Yeah. I, um, I think that's right. And, um, I, um, um, Insecurity is very hard to get a hold of, and um, you know, I, I've made I've made a career out of wearing blue jeans, <laughs> uh, which means I've gotten away with a lot. But I was trained to get away with a lot. If you come from working class people, you know you better have some up yours attitudes, um, uh, humility. I always think of humility. I think I, I I can't remember if I wrote it. I think I did in that um, uh, chapter on humility about Frank Lloyd Wright. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Where he, he was he was he uh, was uh, sued uh, sued for it sued yeah <laughs> because one of his houses leaked, and when he was put on the stand, the um, uh, attorney said, "Would you say who you are?" He said, "I'm Frank Lloyd Wright, the world's greatest architect." And when he got back to his lawyer's um desk the lawyer said oh mr wright did you have to say that it just turns the jury's teeth on edge and he said what could i do i was under oath <laughs> i mean that that's a kind of uh, of uh humility namely an accurate assessment of one's character and achievement you know,
0: There was this article, there was a series of articles, I guess, that the Christian century ran for years called How I Changed My Mind. Uh And people would write, you know, things that things, convictions that change, ideas that change. If you were going to write that column, what would you write? How have you changed your mind over time? I
1: did write it, you know. I didn't read that. I I didn't read that. It was years ago. Uh, Golly, I was at Notre Dame, I guess. And, uh. Oh, that was a while. That's been a while. Yeah. I think I, I can't remember. I don't think I've ever collected it in a book. Um, I don't know how one would even get to it. I can't remember what I called it. I think it was something like the ethicist as theologian and why theology is crucial to how you think about ethics. Um, but, um, if I were to write it, people think I've been told that they, that people think I've become softer. Uh, I don't have a sense of that at all. Um, I think if I've changed my mind about anything, uh, it's probably uh, that theology um, needs to even be more serious than I've tried to do it. And we, uh, we need even more to take up the intellectual challenges to the faith as true. So I think... I don't know. That's changed my mind. It's just where I think the emphasis even more needs to go.
0: Yeah, Jeff Stout wrote. I think it, I think it was in Ethics After Bible. He, he said that the problem with athe the problem with Christians like James Gustafson is they give atheists like me less and less in which to disbelieve. Yeah, that's,
1: that's a line. <laughs> that's a line from um, Alistair McIntyre's The Religious Significance of Atheism. <laughs> I love. I've with, used it. I've used it many times.
0: Right. Yeah, you know, it's interesting. It, do you, does it, I remember Colin Gunton when he wrote the prom, second edition of Promise of Trinitarian uh-huh. Theology. He said, well, a lot's changed in theology. Now everyone's a Trinitarian. Right. <laughs> but it, isn't it? I mean, it does seem like that kind of theological minim, minimalism of someone like Gustafson
1: has fallen out of vote. I think that seems to be the case. That seems to be the case. And, uh, I, you know, Jim was my teacher, and I am extraordinarily fond of him. But I don't, I mean, obviously the way he does theology and the way I do theology are oranges and apples. But um, um, it it is, I've, I've thought of that recently, that uh, other than maybe around University of Chicago a bit, that mode of doing theology just uh, doesn't seem attractive.
0: Yeah, it's, it's funny. I, I, one of my teachers in seminary at Charles Partee, he was a Calvin scholar. Yeah, he said that he loved Tillich when he went to seminary until he got into the pastorate for five months and realized he didn't have anything to say. Right. <laughs> and he started reading Coleman and all these other people had part yeah. That's just interesting. I mean, I guess that's that maybe the minimalism only plays well outside of concrete church context <laughs> I,
1: it may i don't know i uh, ralph wood tells the same story that he was brought up on Tillich and then um he got out and realized that uh, that was a dead end and flannery o'connor saved him you know, you know he, it, it, carl bart had
0: you know, Bruce McCormick and others have talked about how Schleiermacher was kind of an alter ego uh-huh. for him. I mean, now we could argue whether or not Bart it, it was sort of reading Schleiermacher, thinking of Schleiermacher, or Schleiermacher interpreters, but is there been an alter ego for you? Somebody that's like looming in the background that you're, you're kind of working in relationship to maybe over or against, would it be someone like Niebuhr, Reinhold Niebuhr? No,
1: it's Bart. Wow. No, no it, Bart has always been that for me. And, um, um, I mean, I think Bart was a miracle. I don't know where he came from. and um, But uh, I just think it's uh, a remarkable achievement. What's the
0: last good book you've read?
1: Um, I think uh, Alistair's new book, Ethics in the Conflicts of Modernity, is just brilliant. Everyone needs to read McIntyre' Ethics in the Conflicts of Modernity. It is uh an achievement that is unbelievable for a person to have written in their late eighties. Hmm.
0: You're somebody that has no shortage of uh, fans and people who have liked your work and also no shortage of critics. Yeah, right. uh, who do, Who's who been your best critic? You think who, who, which, which critic have you thought Yeah, this person, you know, they've got, they're onto something.
1: I think scout would certainly be one of the people that I would name as a best critic. Um, Uh, Robert Jensen raised some interesting questions uh, for me. Um,
0: Jensen, America's greatest, was he America's greatest theologian before he died? Yeah, yeah.
1: there's no question. Um, I think Jennifer Heard is a good conversation partner. Um, Hmm. You know, some of my own students, I think, have always been helpful.
0: Yeah, like Bart. I mean, Bart didn't want Bartians, and you haven't wanted... No and it is interesting as I've read a lot of your students I mean you can see your influences and yeah they' they're often yeah they, they're often friendly critics yeah right
1: yeah absolutely right. which is
0: no better thing I mean a teacher couldn't I guess as a teacher especially a teacher of theology you couldn't ask for anything better than a friendly critic as a student
1: no that's right no, because they they probably understand you better than you understand yourself
0: you know you have you talk again in the book about humility and I I, I remember You've you've said you've said the story a few times. You said that Will Wilmon, when he wrote Resident Aliens with you, he says, Damn it, Stanley, I'm gonna make you famous. And you're kinda of like, Well, damn it he did. Right. <laughs> right. And I wonder what what was life after Resident Aliens like? Was it was it different than before that book for you? Was there is because is is was is there a different kind of heroas when your reputation precedes you that
1: much? Uh, no. But what does happen is um uh, you know the line that i use in hannah's child i did not intend to be stanley Hower was uh that line comes from people um responding to you uh, in a manner that they assume they know who you are because you're quote famous and you don't know who it is they're responding to <laughs> and i find that um uh, extraordinarily awkward and uh oftentimes uh, it makes conversation and uh, difficult.
0: I heard Rob Bell once say, I think in a podcast, he's you know kind of a, this, you know, was was this big church pastor now. He's he's a great communicator, but he said, you know, when he got on the cover of Time magazine, because you know he, that was iconic for him. Mm-hmm. He said, you know what? The next week they put someone else on the cover. <laughs>
1: <laughs> right. Yes, I mean, if um, um, American fame. Uh, you can be sure will be short-lived and destructive <laughs> and so i think i've been pretty successful in not being um uh famous and and in terms of how to negotiate the alleged fame that I represent.
0: As you're in retirement now, I mean, your most recent book, again, is, is beautiful. And I, I hope all our listeners get the character of virtue. I and mean, these letters that you've written are amazing. I wonder, what, what are you working on now? Is there another book project or yeah. something you're – what, what, you, what are you doing?
1: There's a, another book I've got coming out called Discerning the Web that uh, I've done. There's a wonderful Canadian named uh, Robert Dean who wrote a book for the life of the world, Bonhoeffer and Hauerwas. Of course, it's it's embarrassing to be compared to Bonhoeffer. But of course, I had, a, as usual, a, a bunch of uh, essays and a ton of sermons. And I thought, I'm just kind of tired putting this stuff together and then explaining, trying to explain to people why I've done it. I'm going to ask someone else to do it, uh, if they would. Um, And so I asked Rob if he would um, act as a kind of co-editor to the book and write an introduction and an epilogue to it. And he's done it, and that'll be coming out from Cascade, I guess. I don't know, six months to a year. Um, Then I've just done um, uh, three chapters uh, on um, Bart's Against the stream and its relevance for today, uh, I love that book um, of essays that Bart did uh, right right after the end of World War II and within the Cold War, uh, and I'm delivering them in a couple of weeks at um, uh, in Vancouver at, at uh, Regent. So uh, that that's something I'm doing. You know, there's so much horror was out there. You almost feel guilty thinking that the world is waiting for me to do something else, but, um, you know, that's, it's a habit. It's what I do. So I guess I'll continue to do it.
0: You mentioned Bonhoeffer and, and, and you've written about Bonhoeffer numerous times. You write about Bonhoeffer uh, to your godson. yeah, mm-hmm. uh, you know, there, there are terms from like letters and papers, like religionless Christianity, right? Which a lot of ink gets spilled on, you know, what does he mean there? You know, I, I I'm wondering if Bonhoeffer had lived, not been executed, what, what what do you think he would have done theologically? What would his pro, what would the, the post war Bonhoeffer have looked like? Do you, do you well, ever think about that?
1: Well, if you read the ethics, um, I think it's pretty clear. I mean, he would have been an extraordinary um, political conservative, um, uh, almost reactionary, um, that worked very hard to uh, re instill in German life normative Christianity, um, um, religionist Christianity uh, in letters and papers. I think it's pretty clear if you read it in relationship to Sanctorium Communio, namely what he's talking about is um, Christianity without Christendom, and um, Christendom produces the category religion, uh, which is a bad category. So I think that I think that's what the kind of stance he would follow up on.
0: And that's interesting. You're saying the wrong way to read that would be like Christianity without the church. Right. It's, 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 it's Christianity without establishment, Christendom, without the trappings that's of right. sort of worldliness. That's right. Um, more minimalist, maybe.
1: Right. That's right.
0: Stanley, thanks so much for taking the time to talk with me. I've really enjoyed it.
1: I've enjoyed it, too.
0: Thanks for listening to Give and Take. If you like what you heard, please do a couple things for me. They are so helpful if you do them. Share this interview on social media or via email or tag someone in a tweet or something and say, hey, this is great. Check it out. Spread the love and goodness if you found it here. Also, if you could go, please, 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 it takes like 60 seconds Go to iTunes and write a review and give a, give a rating to the podcast. It really, really helps, especially as things are getting off the ground. And if you want to consider becoming a Patreon sponsor, you can just go right to the link on the podcast page, giveandtake.fireside.fm. You can find all the information there. Thanks to Stanley for coming on the podcast. Do check out his book, The Character of Virtue, Letters to a Godson. And thank you to Glenn Stallsmith who helped with the technical setup on this podcast. You can follow his exploits at meaningfulworship.blogspot.com Thanks again to you for listening to Give and Take. Until next time, friends, fare the way.